Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. I apologize for my two-year-old saying, ay, 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 during communion. Uh, if you wouldn't have guessed, he was the one Halliburton whose sleep was uninterrupted uh, by tornado sirens last night. So last Sunday, we began our return visit to the Gospel of John, covering passages that we missed back in the fall. We were first reminded of John's explicit agenda in writing this gospel. Chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We also look back to some of the bold claims that John makes about Jesus in chapter 1. Namely, that he is God in the flesh. And then we studied the two main events of John chapter 2. Jesus miraculously turning water into wine at Cana and then clearing out the temple in Jerusalem. Now, our biggest takeaway from John chapter 2 was three simple words. Jesus is better. Jesus offers a better purification for sins through his own body and blood on the cross. Jesus offers the better messianic wine that the Old Testament prophets looked forward to. And Jesus is even a better temple because he truly is God on earth. Jesus is better than everything that came before him. He's better than anything we may prioritize over him today. He's better than any idol we may be tempted to trust, worship, and serve. And because Jesus is so much better than anyone or anything that we can possibly imagine, may we follow his mother's advice in John chapter 2 verse 5 and do whatever he tells us. But today we move ahead to John chapter 4. You can find last fall's sermon from John 3 on our website, on our Facebook page, or on YouTube. But in John chapter 4, we find Jesus in a place that some say he shouldn't be, talking to someone he shouldn't be talking to, and saying things that he shouldn't say. And in the course of this unlikely conversation, we learn a great deal about who Jesus is and what he came to do. It all starts when Jesus meets an unassuming woman at the side of a well. So open up to John chapter 4. Feel free to use our Bibles if you need to follow along or look on the screen and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you that the weather is better now than it was seven hours ago. Uh, Thank you that you got us through the severe weather. Uh, I pray for those who maybe did sustain any kind of damage to property. Uh, Watch over them. Uh, But thank you that the majority of us made it out unscathed. Uh, And thank you that we can be here to worship you today. I pray that you would watch over us as we worship you. Help our words and our songs and our prayers and our hearts and our minds be devoted to you today. I pray that you would shape us and teach us and form us as we need to be formed. 
in your image. Uh, Lord, help us be more like Christ. Help us walk in step with your spirit. Help us love your world, your kingdom more than this world. And Lord, help us put sin to death and pursue holiness and righteousness. And I pray that this service would just be one small contribution to all those efforts. Grow us and form us through the course of this service for your glory. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, some of the most Bible's most important love stories start when a boy meets a girl at a well. We see it in Genesis 24 when Isaac, Abraham's son, meets Rebekah. We see it again in Genesis 29 when Isaac's son Jacob meets Rachel, like father, like son. And we see it in Exodus 2 when an Egyptian fugitive named Moses meets Zipporah. It appears that wells were the ancient equivalent of dating apps. Or maybe there was something in the water. It's where many an Old Testament dude met many an Old Testament chick. And in John chapter 4, Jesus meets a woman at a well too. But Jesus is not there for romance. And Jesus gives this woman something far better than a wedding ring. John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus... Wearied as he was from his journey, like we always talk about, Jesus is fully human. He gets weary when he goes on a journey. He was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, about noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jews and Samaritans had a complicated relationship, to put it lightly. There was a complex web of political, geographical, racial, and spiritual tensions between the two people groups that dated back generations. There was bad blood. Samaritans may have argued that really, they were the true people of God. Way back in the Old Testament, the Jews never should have left a place called Mount Gerizim. That's because Mount Gerizim was the place that Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, built his first altar. It was the land that Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, gave his son Joseph from his deathbed. It was the place where Moses announced blessings for Israel's obedience and curses 
for disobedience. It was a very important place. The Samaritans argued that Israel's slide into sin began when they left Mount Gerizim. But they, the Samaritans, they stayed put. They remained faithful. Now, naturally, the Jews had a very different take on the matter. The Samaritans were only half Jewish, they claimed. After most of the northern Israelites were exiled to Assyria in 722 B.C., you can read about that in 2 Kings 17, the few of them that remained in Samaria married pagans and started worshiping false gods. And those people became the Samaritans. The Samaritans were not the true people of God, the Jews would claim. They were half-breeds, both ethnically and religiously. If you put this all together, it's not hard to see how these two groups of people would not be particularly fond of each other. But then in John chapter 4, along comes the very Jewish Jesus, who has the audacity to strike up a conversation with a lonely Samaritan woman. There's reason to believe that this woman was an outcast. She came to the well at the hottest time of day. And she came by herself when women usually went to the well in groups. But not only does Jesus strike up a conversation with this woman, he does so privately, which some may have considered scandalous. And not only does Jesus speak with her, He asks her for a drink from Jacob's well. Jesus is doing the exact opposite of what the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and even his own disciples would expect from a self-respecting and self-aware rabbi. But then again, this won't be the last time that Jesus bucks cultural and spiritual expectations. But we continue in verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So Jesus uses his surroundings, Jacob's well, to teach this woman a lesson about living water. 
Well water could often be stagnant. Living water, on the other hand, implies movement, flow, activity. But when Jesus uses the phrase living water, he isn't just speaking about higher quality H2O. He's talking about something much bigger. Now, the woman doesn't understand that yet. She's still thinking in terms of physical hydration. But you can't blame her for not getting it right away. Neither did the Jews when Jesus talked about the temple in chapter 2. And neither did Nicodemus when Jesus talked about being born again in chapter 3. So Jesus continues the conversation in verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. We talked about that earlier. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. So to help her along in her understanding, Jesus gently, but also directly, calls out this woman's sin. That's how we learn why she was an outcast. Even in our day and age, we might find a woman with her track record to be a bit suspect. Much less back then. And while the stranger calling her out on her sordid past may have been painful and quite embarrassing, it also gives this woman a much clearer picture of who she's actually talking to. It's no coincidence that the woman quickly perceives that Jesus is no ordinary passerby. She's speaking with a prophet. And you know, it's not every day that you meet a prophet. So the woman makes the most of the opportunity by asking a question. 
And she returns to that conflict we discussed earlier. Who's right, Jesus? Should God's people worship on Mount Gerizim, like we Samaritans say, or in Jerusalem, like you Jews say? In a sense, Jesus answers her question in verse 22. He says salvation comes from the Jews. They are the vehicle that God has used to reveal himself to the world. However, the truth is that Jesus seems much less concerned with solving this theological debate between Jews and Samaritans and more interested in something else. In verse 21 and verses 23 and 24, Jesus makes it clear. Right worship isn't really about where. It's about who. God's primary concern is that people worship him in spirit and truth. We often read that phrase, in spirit and truth, and assume that it's addressing our attitudes and our doctrines. Worship in spirit is about having the right motivation. And worship in truth is about teaching and believing the right things. And while both of those angles absolutely matter, and there's wisdom to that application, that doesn't really seem to be what's happening here. Right worship, worship in spirit and truth, is about who you're worshiping. It's not about old disputes over which mountain is best. It's not about which temple you're standing in. It's not about race, ethnicity, or pedigree. A time is coming, and is now here with Jesus' arrival, when something besides location matters most when it comes to worship. What matters most is your response to God himself. Think of it this way. If the one true God were standing right in front of you, I don't know, just spitballing here, let's say you met him at a well, would you worship him? If the answer is yes, then you're worshiping rightly in both spirit and truth. Now, at this point, it seems like the woman is starting to catch Jesus's drift. She's the one who brings up the Messiah in verse 25. And that's when Jesus comes right out with it. Lady, you're looking at him. The Samaritan woman of John 4 found the living water. She didn't know she needed. It didn't come from Jacob's well. It didn't come from a magical river or stream. And it didn't come with some special bucket and rope. Living water comes from the man she was speaking with. Jesus Christ. The prophets looked forward to this day. For example, look at Isaiah chapter 12. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. 
Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Ding, ding, ding. And you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Jeremiah looked forward to the day of the Messiah as well. But in Jeremiah, God addresses the two sins that his people had committed. First, they had forsaken him, the fountain of living waters, God says. And instead, they had dug out wells for themselves that were broken and could hold no water. Ezekiel says something similar. He looks forward to the day when the Messiah comes and God will sprinkle clean water on sinners. When we will be cleansed from all our uncleannesses, from all our idols. We'll have a new heart, a new spirit. God will remove the heart of stone and give us hearts of flesh. And God will put his spirit within us and will cause us to walk in his statutes And his rules. The prophets looked forward to the day of living water. And with Jesus, that day is here. Nicodemus, back in chapter 3. The pious, respected Jewish teacher. He needed living water that only God could provide. And the woman at the well in John 4. Sinful, outcast, Samaritan, she too needed living water. Both of them needed Jesus. So do you. So do I. So does everyone. So we learn quite a bit about who Jesus is and what he came to do in John chapter 4. First, Jesus came to give living water to parched people. We need new life that only God can provide by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need eternal life that only God can provide through his son, Jesus Christ. And if you have already drank of that living water, praise God. And if you haven't, it's being offered to you today. Second, we learn that Jesus came to deal with sin. Again, Jesus coming right out and addressing this woman's sin may be a bit jarring. All the experts tell us that this is not the way to start a conversation with an unbeliever. And in some ways, they're right. You and I are not Jesus. And we'll likely need to lay groundwork And build trust before we can effectively talk to an unbeliever about sin. But the truth remains that at some point, we can't delay or sidestep the subject. 
Jesus came to expose and atone for sin in a way that only he could on the cross. In order for sin to be dealt with, it has to be brought out into the light. Even though we'd much rather leave it in the dark. Third, Jesus came to create true worshipers. If there's one thing the Bible is abundantly clear about, it's that there is only one true God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And to worship in spirit and truth means to worship him and him alone. Any other worship offered to anyone or anything else is a mockery, a travesty, a corruption, a perversion, an injustice against the God of the universe. True worship revolves around him and him alone. And we learn that Jesus came for all who would believe. No matter which nation you're from, which language you speak, which color your skin is, no matter your spiritual, cultural, or socioeconomic background, no matter your track record, the skeletons in your closet, your baggage, no matter the shame, failures, regrets, missed opportunities, and crushed dreams that you bring with you. Jesus came for all who would believe in him. No matter who you are or how you got here today, you are being offered this living water. You are being offered eternal life by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Now, there are just a few more practical questions worth chewing on before we end. Questions I don't pretend to have all the answers to, but we should all be thinking about. First, what does it look like for people like us to have Jesus at the center of our worship? What have we elevated too highly in our practice of worship? What have we wrongly neglected? How might we be tempted both publicly and privately, to make worship about something other than Jesus. To fall short of worshiping in spirit and truth. Another question is, who are the Samaritans of our day and age and in our own experience? Who are we tempted to view as second-class citizens when really we're just as much in need of God's grace as they are? And finally, how might God send us to collect his harvest? Eventually, this Samaritan woman's entire village believes in Jesus, too. And in verses 35 through 38, Jesus instructs his disciples to go out and reap. How is God calling us to participate in his work of reaping a harvest of salvation? Who are the unbelievers in our lives who God might just be working on right now? How might God use us to see more people come to faith in Christ? To find the living water that they didn't know they needed. 
that we've been given by his grace. All who believe can drink of this living water. You've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. You've been given eternal life. At the end of the day, Jesus is the source. He is the spring. So may we look forward to worshiping him in spirit and truth in eternity. And that day, he will be our shepherd. And he will guide us to living water. And God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have in your word. And thank you that you are abundantly gracious. You are abundantly generous. In the same way that you gave Adam and Eve more than enough food in the Garden of Eden, you have more than enough living water for all who would believe in you. And so, Lord, help us place our faith in you. Help us come to know the truth the way you helped that Samaritan woman along to know the truth. Thank you that you came to address our sin, that you came to give us something far better than anything the world has to offer. Thank you that you came to quench our thirst, that you came to make us whole, that you came to help us flourish, to be the people you made us to be to be true worshipers in spirit and in truth. Lord, help us be those worshipers. Give us this living water. Help us be reapers, going out and sharing this living water with a world that desperately needs it, that is dusty and dry. And Lord, thank you that you are faithful to bring in a harvest, that you've brought us in by your grace, and you're bringing more people in. Lord, help us be a part of that work. Thank you for that great privilege and that great joy. Thank you for the eternal life that we have in Christ. We love you. We honor you. We thank you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.